I had a little bird. Its name was Enza. I opened up the window and influenza. I like to tell the stories that the school books leave out. I write about what, what I call hidden history. And there's no better example of what hidden in history than the story of the Spanish flu. When I was in fifth grade, I spent months learning about the Black Death, a plague so deadly and contagious that Christians were certain it had been sent by a vindictive God. I was haunted by images of blackened fingers and pus-filled swellings that oozed off the pages of my history textbook. But as horrifying as this disease was, it belonged to ancient history a threat that had faded with the fall of Constantinople. Or so I thought. I might have gone on believing this since no history teacher ever assigned a reading, much less dedicated a unit, to the 1918 Spanish flu, an influenza pandemic that killed more people in a year than the bubonic plague killed over the course of 100. One in three people on Earth fell ill from the Spanish flu. The mortality rate was highest among young, otherwise healthy adults. And 50 to 100 million people died of the flu in a world where the global population was less than one-third of today's. For context, World War I killed approximately 17 million. Historian Laura Spinney describes the Spanish flu as the greatest massacre of the 20th century. But there are no monuments or memorials dedicated to the victims of this pandemic. And very few history chapters address their plight. That an event of such epic devastation should be forgotten feels especially strange today amidst the coronavirus pandemic as we are all now familiar with the havoc that infectious disease can wreak across economies, communities, and families. I'm Margot Gray. On this season of Lost Prologue, we'll be talking to historians, scientists, and doctors to uncover what we know and what we don't know about the world's deadliest pandemic. Over the course of the next few episodes, we'll piece together answers to a host of questions that history textbooks don't address. What made the 1918 flu so lethal? Who was most vulnerable? And what was the significance of the pandemic in the lives of ordinary Americans? Chapter 1. The Cost of War Spanish flu is a misleading name for the pandemic of 1918. While scientists and historians still debate the geographic origins of the virus, they can agree on one thing definitively. The pandemic did not originate in Spain. In order to understand the misnomer, 
we must, like any good historian, consider the larger historical context in which the flu took place, the First World War. Total war in 1918 demanded the complete mobilization of a nation's resources and relied heavily upon public support. Combatant countries waged campaigns of propaganda and censorship in order to maintain high morale. In the United States, the battle for public opinion took on particular urgency. Many Americans had good reason to oppose the war, including President Woodrow Wilson, who had run his 1916 re-election campaign on the slogan, He Kept Us Out of War. So, when Wilson declared war on Germany in April 1917, he took no chances and set out to foster a sense of intense patriotism. Within a week of declaring war, Wilson created the Committee on Public Information, a new federal agency tasked with actively shaping press coverage and convincing millions of Americans why they should now support the war effort. The head of the unit, George Creel, created the Four Minute Men program, in which trained volunteers from local communities delivered brief patriotic speeches in movie theaters, restaurants, and meeting places across the country. Creel estimated that by the end of the war, 75,000 volunteers had delivered over 7.5 million speeches. It is simply a question now of the survival of autocracy or democracy. They are in their death grapple. It is a fight to the finish, and it is up to us. It was in this environment that the virus emerged, which explains why Spain, a neutral nation during World War I, would be one of the only places to report on the initial outbreak. Other countries, like the United States, like France, Germany, Great Britain, had press censorship or the press was self-censoring, so they did not report the outbreak of the flu. That's Kenneth C. Davis, author of Don't Know Much About History, and most recently, More Deadly Than War, The Hidden History of the Spanish Flu and the First World War. So censorship really played a great role in the spread of the flu because the governments feared letting the truth out. They didn't want people to panic. They wanted to keep morale high. They didn't want the enemy to know that they were weakened by the flu. Meanwhile, the Spanish press reported diligently on the mysterious illness, and people around the world believe Spain to be ground zero. In reality, there was nothing Spanish about the flu. It may never be known where the virus actually originated. Some claim that it arose in the United States, some hypothesize Asia, others say Europe. We'll likely never know. Whatever the flu's exact origin, we know that the pandemic came in waves. And the first wave, at least compared to what would come, was relatively mild, largely indistinguishable from annual influenza. The outbreak was most apparent in military camps, 
where huge numbers of new draftees were crowded into stuffy barracks. The United States saw its first real outbreak in March 1918 at Camp Funston, a military base in central Kansas that held around 56,000 young troops. These soldiers would unwittingly become carriers of disease as they traveled to camps around the country and eventually across the Atlantic. They were then the infected soldiers getting on troop transports, railroad cars first, and then ships, and being taken in enormous numbers to Europe. About one million American soldiers, doughboys, land in France by May of 1918, and many of them are carrying the influenza virus that would soon become the Spanish flu. Throughout the spring, outbreaks disrupted operation at army camps in the U.S. and in Europe. But overall, the first wave caused little alarm. It was autumn of 1918 when the virus reemerged, erupting in three port cities around the world. Brest, France, Freetown, Sierra Leone, and Boston, Massachusetts. On September 7, 1918, a soldier of the 42nd Infantry, delirious and writhing in pain, showed up to the hospital at Camp Devins, a military base right outside of Boston. He was diagnosed with cerebrospinal meningitis because of the sudden onset of the disease. But the following day, a dozen more soldiers showed up to the hospital with the same symptoms. By September 23rd, over 12,000 cases had been reported in the camp of 45,000 soldiers. The military hospital, designed for 1,200 people, was overwhelmed and overrun. The cause, it was determined, was influenza. The Army Surgeon General, William C. Gorgas, sent his best epidemiologist to Camp Devins to examine the situation. Among them was William Henry Welch, esteemed pathologist and founding dean of John Hopkins School of Medicine. The Army's physicians were the best in the country, the same men who had pioneered the recent advances in medical science and bacteriology. They were confident in their ability to combat disease. They had typhoid vaccination by World War I. They had tetanus antitoxin. They could keep the water clean with lister bags. They understood the role of mosquitoes in spreading disease. They had x-ray machines. They had all this stuff. So they thought they had really nailed a lot of this. That's Dr. Carol R. Byerly a historian of military medicine and author of Fever of War, the influenza epidemic in the U.S. Army during World War I. Unfortunately, their scientific tools would prove no match for the influenza virus, whose symptoms shocked the medical experts visiting Camp Devins. They just couldn't believe it. They could not believe that these young men were dying. Blood flowed from the noses and ears of young soldiers who suffered high fevers, disabling headaches, and pains in joints and muscles. As their lungs filled with fluid, 
many of them were turning blue. A doctor working at Camp Devins wrote to a fellow physician that it was difficult to distinguish the colored men from the white. In the autopsy room, physicians were horrified to discover bloody and sodden lungs. Lungs should ordinarily be light and airy. When placed in buckets of water, the virus-infected lungs sunk straight to the bottom. When the Army Medical Department saw this pandemic, they said, you got to stop the draft. You can't be bringing new people into these camps that are infected. And you can't be moving people from one camp to another camp when they're infected. And the line command said, no, we can't stop. These Army physicians weren't ignorant, Dr. Byerly explained. But they didn't have virology and they didn't have antibiotics and they didn't have a command structure that was sympathetic to what they needed to do. As troops continued moving from base to base, the outbreak exploded in camps all over the country. And it wasn't long before the virus spread from camps to the civilian population, where it would soon touch every corner of the American landscape from coal mining towns in Appalachia to remote villages in Alaska. It's in every cemetery in the United States. There are gravestones of young people who died in 1918. Nowhere was the collision between war and disease as apparent as in Philadelphia. All American cities suffered horribly during the pandemic. But the severity of the outbreak there was unparalleled. Philadelphia was woefully overcrowded in 1918. The war effort had increased demand for labor in the city's steel and shipbuilding factories, drawing in tens of thousands of migrant workers. Congestion worsened and conditions deteriorated in the slums and tenement districts where two to three families occupied small homes and entire blocks often shared a singular outhouse. At the same time that the population was ballooning, the city was losing hundreds of doctors and nurses to the military. At Pennsylvania Hospital, on 8th and Spruce Streets, three quarters of the medical and surgical staff was overseas. All this is to say that the city was ripe for contagion when, on September 7, 1918, a ship arrived from Boston at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. 300 sailors disembarked, unaware that they were harboring a lethal virus. Of course, it wouldn't be long before influenza made itself known. In only a week's time, 600 sailors and Marines at the Navy District required hospitalization. Public health officials were monitoring the outbreak, well aware of what had happened in Boston, how disease had spread from the military to civilian population. On September 21st, the Board of Health issued a list of recommendations, urging Philadelphia residents to stay warm, keep their feet dry, and avoid crowds but the city would not heed its own advice. 
On September 28, 1918, some 200,000 people crowded the streets of Philadelphia to watch the Liberty Loan Parade, an event sprawling 23 city blocks. The celebration was intended to foster patriotism and, most importantly, raise millions of dollars in war bonds. How could a parade of this magnitude possibly take place? And why did no one step forward to stop it? Popular accounts often place the blame entirely on Philadelphia's public health director, Dr. Wilmer Cruzen. To do so, however, ignores the political and wartime reality in the city. The patriotic fervor was so intense that any criticism of the war, any indirect criticism of the war, was construed as unpatriotic behavior. And the day before Philadelphia's parade, Chicago had its parade, and it was a magnificent event. The president of the United States walked in that parade. So how could Philly hold the parade back after Chicago's doing it, other major cities are doing it, and this was part of a national intense fundraising campaign? That's Dr. Robert Hicks, William Malmese Chair for the History of Medicine at the College of Physicians of Pennsylvania. He recently directed an exhibition on the Spanish flu at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. Dr. Hicks explained that in the eyes of city authorities, influenza did not pose enough of a threat to warrant cancellation of the parade. The falsity of this assessment would become readily apparent. Within three days of the parade, every single bed in the city's 31 hospitals was filled. People were refused entry into hospitals without a doctor or police order and the sick began pouring in to emergency hospitals that were opening in state armories and parish houses. Five days after the parade, Dr. Cruzen banned all public meetings, churches, and schools. But it was too late. Mortality was about to skyrocket. The flu killed 700 people during the first week of October. On October 12th, the worst day of the outbreak, 837 people died from influenza alone. During an average day in Philadelphia prior to the pandemic, 70 to 90 people died from all causes. The mortality rate was far in excess of the city's ability to handle dead bodies and record deaths. Funeral homes ran out of coffins. The city morgue had room for 36 bodies and it wasn't long before dead bodies lay in homes and in streets. So in some cases, people took bodies to cemeteries where they intended to have the bodies buried and simply left the bodies there on the assumption that somebody at the cemetery would take care of it. In other cases, people buried their own, sometimes in their own yards. For some, they were simply told, take the dead out of the house and leave them by the curb. And there were volunteers that went up and down a lot of neighborhood streets collecting the dead. And they would simply take them to big open mass graves where individual people were not even marked or recognized. Certainly one of the most poignant stories that heard so far was a family whose child had died. And the family decided they wanted to get a death certificate. Not easy to get when the flu 
pandemic was raging, uh, it's not as if somebody would come to the house and create one for you. So they contacted the office. The office says, well, you have to come down here and bring, bring proof of death and we can give you that death certificate. So the only way to do that was for the family, I think it was the father who took the child, the dead child on public transportation down to city hall, went to the appropriate office, brought the dead child in and said, all right, here's my dead child. And they got the death certificate, by the way. It also opens the question of how many families experienced this and did not get a death certificate since there was no functioning public mechanism to remove the dead, to bury the dead. People were burying their own bodies. World War I is largely remembered for mustard gas and trench warfare. But its greatest impact in the United States would come from its collision with a deadly virus, as soldiers were transported around the country in tight quarters, workers were packed in urban factories making munitions, and nurses were away on service aiding the military. The war massively accelerated the movement of people around the world and foreshadowed the devastating power of a global pandemic. As the virus spread, governments remained largely silent to preserve their images of domestic strength in wartime. President Woodrow Wilson would lose 675,000 Americans to the virus and never make a single public statement on the issue.